You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast proud to use the theme song from this sadly maligned film as its introduction music. Through Space episode of Just Run of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two characters who are essentially going to be lost in space eventually. See what I did there? Because of the theme song, awesome. You get it, of course. Actually, this time out, it's Kyle who's lost in space. After the destruction of the planet Oa from his own doing, Kyle's kind of uh, aimless, doesn't know where he's going. So, where's the first place he stops at? Oh, essentially the DC Universe version of the Star Wars Cantina. But rather than meeting up with a scoundrel and his Wookiee co-pilot, Kyle meets up with a former Green Lantern. A former Green Lantern who's female, and really hot, and really into Kyle. So you know, with Kyle's track record with females, it's not going to turn out well. And speaking of hot females, over in the Guy Gardner issue, we get to meet Guy's former love, Heather, from Guy Gardner Warrior issue 22. Plus, we find out what's been going on with Mace, as both of them have been stuck in a coma, in which Guy's main baddie from his series, Dementor, has been torturing them in ultra-creepy ways great setup for the new villain in the Guy Gardner book, and it's got really great storytelling and visual elements from Mo- from awesome man Bo Smith and Mitch Bird and Dan Deans. They're hitting their mark in this book now, and they're finally coalescing into a really great story. Hopefully Professor Allen will like it as well. But we'll get to both of those after I play some promos for some excellent podcasts, and then, coming up, Green Lantern number 56. Okay, last one to kill a bad guy buys the beer. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hardworking people. I'm Batman. Whoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Hey! Let's get for Captain America! It's a dying man! It's the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. 
Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audio books, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes or come visit us at bookguys.ca. And we're back. So, as we usually do, we're going to go check out the email bag and see what kind of letters you wonderful listeners have written in to the show. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And our first letter comes in from the indomitable Professor Allen, who you probably heard just a few seconds ago doing his advertisement for the Book Guys show. Great podcast uh, with Paul Ad Alves, uh, Sir Jimmy, and uh, Father Robert Balliser, I think is his name. I'm horrible with names. Uh, they do a great show about book reviews. They talk about comic books and podcasts. Got a lot of great people who come on the show, and it's a really fun show to check out. Plus, uh, if you like uh, the Fantastic Four, and Professor Allen definitely does, being the attache to Latveria, check out uh, the Fantastic Cast with Stephen Lacey and Andrew Leyland. I think by the time this show hits, uh, the episode with Professor Allen as a guest host should probably be on. So if you want to hear Professor Allen talk about his favorite character and his wacky exploits with those four horrible people who are trying to destroy Latveria, go ahead and check out the Fantastic Cast. Awesome listen. But Professor Allen writes in, and this was about a month ago when he wrote this in, he said, Sean... I don't know how far in advance you are recording, but I hope these comments on Guy Gardner Warrior number 25 find their way to you before you've recorded. Well, I, they did, and I had to hold off a while on the email, so it's getting read now since we're going to be covering Guy Gardner Warrior 25 here in a few. This is the first comic you've covered in the show that I actually possess. Wow, that's cool. You know, I hope that my synopses have been giving you a good enough idea of what the previous comics were about, so you could actually follow along. I, I appreciate the fact that you actually went out and got this comic. That's that's awesome. Uh, as you mentioned nearly epi- every episode, very few of these issues have been collected, but I picked this one out of the 20 cent bo- 25 cent box a few months ago at my local comic book shop. Awesome. I'm glad that you picked it up. It's well worth 25 cents. Uh, Professor Allen continues, having read the issue, that seems more like a fair price. More fair than the 250 on the cover. Eh, for the time, 250 was a bit overpriced for this. I suppose the story actually serves its purpose as a transition from Guy dealing with the Zero Hour events moving to the Warriors area. Mike Bailey often points out that it's not every comic that not every comic produced in the 1990s fit the stereotype of a 1990s comic, but this issue strikes me as a definitive product of its time. It has an over-the-top villain, a dreamscape battlefield, some silly quips. Yeah, this does have all the templates of a 90s comic. It does have all those things in it, but it does it in more of a fun way than uh, a serious and gritty way. There's a definite distinction I can tell from this comic compared to stuff like maybe Cable or Youngblood or a lot of the image stuff out there. Especially like Spawn, you know, which was all just dark and it's kind of hard to say ultraviolet because nowadays mainstream DC comics can be ultraviolet. So there you go. Continuing with Professor Allen, he says, But to me, the best page in the comic is Adam Hughes' pinup of Guy and Ice. Mostly the ice part. Hughes has become known for his photorealistic style these days, but even here in the 1994 he was showing his skill in drawing women who were both beautiful and realistic. And yeah, issue 25 here did have the, uh, because it was a double-sized issue, it also had some pinup art at the end uh, of various stages in Guy Gardner's career, including some great stuff by Joe Staten and Adam Hughes, as he said. Gene Haw was another good one in there. Uh, Bird and Davis also did a pinup in there. It's it's actually a lot better pinups in the Guy Gardner Warrior issue than it was in issue 50 of Green Lantern, where the pinups were kind of hit and miss, in my opinion. But we'll get to those later. Professor Allen concludes, I continue to enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. Professor Allen, co-host of the Show.ca. Thanks, Professor Allen. I appreciate you writing in, and definitely go check out the Book Guys show. 
they put out a really entertaining show. And if you have an MP3, blah, an MP3 player that has a video screen, like an iPhone or an Android phone, they are actually starting to put out video podcasts. And you can actually see them use, I think they might use Skype, or sometimes they use GoToMeeting. But they use that to put out a video podcast. So if you have the bandwidth and the space on your phone or MP3 player, go check it out so you can get an eyeful of Professor Allen's awesomeness. Our next letter comes in from wonderful Canadian listener Scott Davis, who's rewriting in about some episodes he's listened to. Scott writes, That's excellent. I can't wait to get to episode 53 to hear your comments. I got through a bunch more recently. Numbers 26 through 28, Evil Star Rising. And you're right. How's being a douche in this series? It really comes out in these three issues, and you nailed them in all of your podcasts. The way he treats Carol like trash is ridiculous, and it comes right after saving her life and doing anything for her for the pre- in the previous story arc. The villains in this arc are ridiculous. If you've forgotten who the villains are, it's Goldface, Repo, Jocasta, and Piston. Oh, and Evil Star as well, so yes, pretty ridiculous villains. I think it's funny that they're worried about being spotted by a prop plane in issue 28. We've been discovered! Yes being frightened by crop dusters is obviously a thing that most villains have to worry about. Oh, and how using his jacket as a parachute? Never gonna work, buddy. Yeah, that was pretty implausible, the fact that he lost his ring power and decided to parachute down by using his jacket to try and slow his fall. Yeah, he was gonna be pretty much a big red splotch on the uh, floor of the forest. Again, as with Flicker, I'm looking forward to see if some of the villains make a return in later issues. Well, for better or worse, uh, Goldface, Repo, Jocasta, and Piston did return in the uh, issues of Guy Gardner. Thankfully, that was pretty much where they left off, because, in my opinion, they weren't the most awesome villains. They could be scraping the bottom of the barrel if you're really wanting to catch me on a certain day. Scott continues, Guy Gardner Reborn issues 1 through 3. I really enjoyed this series, and I really think Gerard Jones is really hitting his stride here. Thank you for having Thomas D.G. on, because he was great. We even have an appearance by Norton in the first issue, which is always nice. Lobo is an interesting character that always brings a whole new level of violence to Gerard's run. The way he kills the Cordians is absolutely brutal, especially the hippie Cordian. <laughs> that one was... Yeah, he basically put his foot through his head, so there's Lobo for you. It's the 90s. Overall, this was a fun, action-packed adventure for Guy, and I look forward to the Warrior series. Number 29. This is a perfect example how your podcast can turn a relatively uneventful issue, Olivia Reynolds' toys, (laughs) into something hilarious. Uh, the Ann Coulter jokes abounded. Scott continues, again, Hal is being a complete asshole, and, jabs, and the jabs you take at him are great and had me laughing out loud. After the blue alien asks Hal why he hasn't helped out the other alien races, I wanted to reach through the panel and slap Hal silly while he turns and looks into the air and asks, now I ask you, what are you going to do? Ugh. And that shit-eating grin of his on the last page makes me want to puke. Yeah, this was the whole homage parody of the Green Arrow, Green Lantern series where he's approached by the elderly black man and said, what have you done for the black people? And just kind of rubbed me raw when they did that. Scott again continues, but now I have to tell you that your podcasts 30 and 31 were two of my favorites. Your coverage of Guerrilla Warfare with Dave Walker was excellent. You guys clicked so well and sounded like you've been podcasting together for years. As far as the issues go, I really enjoyed the fun callback to the Silver Age very fun to read and was made even more enjoyable by listening to your coverage the coverage of it Scott, thank you for the kind words I really appreciate it Dave Walker is an awesome podcaster and I hope to get him back on the show very soon I know here in a while there's going to be a team up between uh, Wally and Kyle and I can't wait to get to that if you're wanting uh, maybe go check out the Two True Freaks website I'm doing a separate show over there about Doctor Who called, oddly enough, Who True Freaks. And on the episode that should be coming up here in a while, or actually might be out by now, is uh, Dave Walker of Flash Legacies. And we talk about uh, 
the fourth season episode of Doctor Who, the new Doctor Who Partners in Crime. And Dave's just a fun guy to be with, and essentially whenever I get on with anyone from the UK, I have to ramble for like 30 to 45 minutes before we even start the show about Doctor Who, so that was really awesome to have Dave on, and I can't wait to have him on again. And this time out, we get a final email from Mr. Charlie Niemeyer, host of Superman in the Bronze Age and his new podcast, Charlie's Geekcast. Uh, he did, we're actually talking about Dave Walker again. Uh, Dave was on Charlie's Geekcast covering the Transformers a few weeks back. Uh, fun podcast there. Charlie's Geekcast is always great, and it's fun to listen to either him talk about Superman or talk about, talk about geeky stuff as well. But, uh... Charlie writes in with the simple message, Kyle. Enough said. And Charlie, I wholeheartedly agree with the sentiment. I am really glad to get the Kyle Rayner stuff. But thank you everyone for writing into the show. It really makes the whole entire doing the podcast thing fun when you get feedback from people. Everyone, thanks for writing in. And if you want to write in, the email address for the show is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. You'll hear it at the end tag as well. But to fulfill Charlie's desires, well, maybe not those desires, but his desires to hear about Kyle Rayner and a Green Lantern book, we're going to go ahead and get to our coverage of Green Lantern number 56. Green Lantern number 56 had a cover date of November 1994 with a release date of September 20th, 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $70p UK. The title was Last of the Breed. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Daryl Banks, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Steve Matson, letterer Albert Guzman, assistant editor Eddie Berganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. In the chamber of the most evil tyrant in the galaxy, a purple-robed Desaad eagerly questions a darkened figure about what he's so intently studying. The new god Darkseid silences Desaad as he watches the newest Green Lantern with great interest. And with that cameo out of the way, we move on to Green Lantern Kyle Rayner walking into a bar. Not with a priest, a nun, and a rabbi, mind you. That looks like it came out of a rejected episode of Star Wars The Clone Wars. Kyle saunters up to the bar and asks the alien barkeep for directions home. A friendly female patron says that she could show Kyle some places that he would go. Most of them supposedly being her naughty bits. The interchange provokes the wrath of Poto Baba, who warns Kyle to watch himself because he has the death sentence on 12 systems. Kyle tries to resolve the situation, but it leads to the barroom Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leland, 2011, all rights reserves, with Kyle wrapping up the baddie in a Hannibal Lecter-style straitjacket. This, of course, leads to Dr. Ivasin threatening Kyle, while the barkeep screams, No blasters! No blasters! Kyle gets a needed distraction from a hooded figure wielding not a lightsaber, but a chair, and the brawl begins with the hooded figure revealing herself to be another Green Lantern. Kyle is shocked to see another GL, especially when he thought he was the last of them, and as they finish mopping up the aliens that were attacking them, Kyle and the mysterious female leave the bar to find some place that they can talk. The duo head to the roof of a building, where they take in the night sky. The female reveals that her name is Adara, and that she was once a Green Lantern. She relates a tale of how she was fighting Corellian pirates when her ring gave out, and she was spared the fate of explosive decompression in space by being rescued by said pirates. She managed to escape before she was tortured by them, but without the ring, she doesn't know what to do with her life. Kyle relates to her loss, telling her the story about Alex's death. Then he tries to cheer Adara up with constructs of a puppy and roses. Alex's favorite flowers. Feeling awkward about sharing his feelings with this woman he just met, Kyle shies away, but Adara understands his loss and pulls him close and kisses the young Green Lantern. Meanwhile, some time has passed, and Kyle wastes post-coital, allegedly, with his clothes on, but no ring and no uniform. Realizing what has happened, Kyle heads back to the bar where he met Adara to try and find any information about the thieving former GL. The bartender pours Kyle a drink to try and help him forget, as he gives his patented speech about how females are bad news. But in a rare occurrence where drinking makes you remember things, Kyle dashes out of the bar and back to the rooftop where he and Adara made sweet, sweet love. Allegedly. 
He finds the ex-lantern on the rooftop weeping, lamenting the fact that she was unable to use the ring and that she stole from Kyle. Resolve that Kyle will be the only one to be Green Lantern from now on, Adara tosses the ring back to him and angrily tells him to go. Saying he's sorry that she couldn't regain what she once had, Kyle slowly walks away until he hears the sound of a gunshot ringing through the air. Turning, Kyle sees the lifeless corpse of Adara, the smoking gun lying in her now-dead hand. Kyle buries his face in his hands as he again realizes that the burden of being the last Green Lantern is indeed a heavy one. And with that, Kyle heads off into space once again to try and find his way back home. But instead of an intergalactic gas station with roadmaps of the universe, Kyle finds a Legion spaceship, which might not be as helpful or as friendly. Because I don't tend to read ahead in the issues, and because I haven't actually read this issue since I actually picked it up in 1994, I had completely forgotten about the content of it, and the presence of a former Green Lantern in the book, who, sadly, takes her life at the end of the book. It really seems like in these first few issues with Kyle as Green Lantern, they're really making out to have a really troubled life with initially the loss of Alex and then the loss of this new girl that he meets with. It's not looking good if you're a girlfriend or in any type of relationship with Kyle. I understand it's a character-building thing, but I'm hoping that it doesn't continue on excessively. Kyle needs to have some good things happen in his life, and right now they're working too much on the tragedy angle to try and build his character. I'm hoping this turns around pretty soon. But let's go ahead and get to the notes for this issue, starting with the cover, which is kind of a weird one. It's set in the bar with uh, all the weird aliens around, but I'm wondering when in the heck did Kyle basically turn into the Incredible Hulk? If you look at the image of Kyle on this picture, he is far more roided up than he ever was. Uh, Maybe there's something wrong with the atmosphere on the planet, or... And his hair has got all wavy. It looks all predator-like as well. So I don't get it. Plus, there's, uh, I guess this is kind of nice, there's also someone alien on the planet uh, borrowed Aresia's costume from the uh, Guy Gardner's book, so that's kind of neat. And also, if you're not watching, over in the left-hand corner of the uh, cover, there's that green-cloaked figure that will eventually turn out to be Adara in the book. So it's nice that they're putting that figure in the background, kind of there, subtly placing her on the cover, and then eventually revealing her in the book. Page one, well, Superman had to show up and say how great the new Green Lantern was, so I guess it's only fitting that Darkseid shows up to do essentially the same. It's kind of odd that Darkseid shows up, I'm kind of remembering the whole ambush bug thing where Darkseid showed up at the end of every book and ambush bug was just really freaked out about it but I guess it's always a good thing to have uh, the biggest villain in the DC universe to show up and say hmm you look pretty badass so there you go pages two and three well as you heard you might as well just cue the cantina band music here because Essentially, this is a big Star Wars ripoff. I mean, there's a Zudarian stripper up there on a swing. Uh, We've got some Legion-type people. uh, And over in the left-hand corner, it looks like we've got the character of the Giver from those Japanese anime shows, and oddly enough, the Mark Hamill movie. So, Star Wars connection tied up there, here as well. Page 4, panel 5, as Kyle's being propositioned by the girl who's wanting to show him some things. I just had to think that 
if she only had three breasts, maybe Kyle would have been won over a bit easier. Page 5, panel 4. I see Kyle ringing up this construct to wrap up this alien who's about to attack him, and the only thing that goes through my mind is... Oh, and Senator, just one more thing. Love your suit. Absolutely priceless. Thank you, Anthony Hopkins. Page 7, panel 4. Okay, now we get kind of an idea of why Kyle looks so wonky on the cover. The uh, weird bulkiness of him on the cover was actually him bringing up some armor that he used to fight these guys. And it's it's weird sort of hulky type armor. It makes him look very muscular. His upper body is so overdefined, it's just ridiculous. And it also gives him the weird long hair that's kind of predator-like, so again, it's the 90s, folks. Page 8, panel 3. When I first looked at this panel, I thought these little aliens with the eyeballs and the tentacles were actually the drawl from the Yesterday Sin storyline and Guy Gardner, but unfortunately on second look, they're not, and that's kind of disappointing because I think those were interesting aliens that Chuck Dixon introduced into the sh- into the series, but really weren't picked up on and taken to anywhere else but the Yesterday's Sin storyline. Page 9, panel 4. I'm kind of glad about this. I'm pretty certain that in modern comics, if a character got their head blown off, there would be a panel of a bleeding, gruesome image with a smoldering hole in it. Thankfully here, it's simply done as this character was actually a robot, so the blast to the head was actually intentional and really didn't cause any grievous, violent harm. Page 11, panel 2. This is where Kyle and Adara are going up to the top of this building to look at the stars and everything, and I really enjoy the ring construct love seat that Kyle rings up, obviously. It's just kind of... it amuses me, and yes, again, I know this has been sort of a contention with a lot of people, but Kyle does tend to get the hottest women in the galaxy just right off the bat. I mean, he starts with Alex, he moves on to this girl, Adara, he moves on to Sorenik, he moves on to uh, Donna Troy, Jade. He's gotten more hot women than any character in the DC Universe, and that's saying something. So, good on you, Kyle. Page 13, panel 6. I want to compliment Daryl Banks on finally getting the look of Kyle down. Here on this panel, we get a really great image of Kyle. He's just given Adara the ring construct roses, and he's got this contented look, this contented smile on his face, and it's perfect. You can tell that he's happy that he's doing this thing, but he's also reminiscent of missing Alex. So Banks initially during his run on the whole new Green Lantern stuff was kind of off and on. I think that might have also been attributed to having more than one artist on the series. But now that he's the sole artist and he's doing all the artwork by himself, which is redundant, his artwork's really coming through and he's really got the character of Kyle down right here. Page 14, panel 6, after Kyle and Adara kiss and you expect uh, something else went on, we get a panel that has two orbs in it, and a large curved phallic symbol in it. Yes, the two orbs are moons, and the curved phallic symbol is a building of some sort, but if you're knowledgeable of any type of subtext, you kind of get what the image means. Page 15, note to self, never trust a hot former Green Lantern if I ever meet one. There we go, done. But then, all kidding aside, pages 17 through 19, we get some really powerful stuff as Kyle finally re-encounters Adara, who's stolen the ring and tried to use it to take out the uh, pirates who had captured her, and she finds out that she couldn't use the ring at all, and she almost got herself killed. So, her entire existence was to be Green Lantern, and now that she can't, she doesn't feel the need to live, and... Obviously, she takes action on that and ends her life. So it's really powerful stuff, and it's stuff that was could be handled in an awkward or juvenile way by lesser writers, but 
Ron Mars and Daryl Banks and Romeo Tangal bring it all together and really make it a compelling uh, set of panels and a compelling end to this issue. Then page 21, great. Now I've got to go pick up another issue of a comic that I really have no interest in in order to figure out what the heck happened to Kyle here. Yep. Yep. I'm going to have to go read Rebels number one to find out just what the heck is going on here. But we're not going to have to find out what the heck is going on with Guy Gardner because after this break, where I plug a few promos for a couple of excellent podcasts, we'll be getting to issue number 25 of Guy Gardner Warrior. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. It was for this moment that we were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might Beware my power Green Lantern's Light Green Lantern's Light A monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, Jon Stewart, Guy Gardner and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today Say the oath Join the Corps Green Lantern's Light Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com Hey, Kiss Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one! Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved! We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do, we still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode, still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? And we're back. And if you're a listener to Hey Kids Comics, make sure that you go to the Two True Freaks feed, because Hey Kids Comics is no longer on their own feed. Yeah, if you try and update the uh, iTunes link for Hey Kids Comics, you'll get jack-all. So go to Two True Freaks, and every Thursday, download one of the most enjoyable podcasts on the internet. And speaking of enjoyable, see what I did? Segway School pays out. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start my coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 25. This one's for you, Professor Allen. Guy Gardner Warrior 25 was cover dated November 1994, with a release date of about October 4th, 1994. The cover price was 250 US, 350 Canada, and a pound 50 UK. Being a double size issue, price went up. The title was Family Ties. No Michael J. Fox, though. Writer was Bo Smith, penciler Mitch Bird, anchor Dan Davis, colorist Stu Shaffitz, letterer Albert de Guzman, editor Eddie Braganza, with special thanks to Joe Staten. Woohoo, Joe Staten. Thoroughly pissed, Guy Gardner tosses Icelandic guards across the hall as he makes his way to the temple where the statue of the now deceased love of his life stands. Falling to his knees, Guy blames Ice's death on his personal quest for power. If he had only been there, maybe he could have done something, anything, to save the woman that he loved. 
the woman that let him love her. But as the warrior mourns his loss, the comforting hand of Queen Olaf, Ice's mother, comes to rest on Guy's shoulder. Guy rises, and in the native language of the royal family, he apologizes for not being there to save Ice, and that he would gra- gladly give his life to bring her back. Knowing that outsiders aren't welcome, Guy prepares to leave, but is stopped by the queen, who says that the joy he brought Tora will always make him welcomed here, saying that he may stay as long as he likes, and complimenting on his command of their language, Queen Olaf leaves Guy to finish his tribute to her fallen daughter. Sometime later, Guy heads for a waiting helicopter, whose pilot is ready to take him back to the hospital in New York City, where Guy has some people very close to him waiting. We cut to... Mm, someplace. Let's just call it Comaville, where Dementor, the Dave Mustaine Doomsday wannabe, sits upon a throne of emaciated bodies and taunts his two captives, Guy's brother Mace and Guy's ex-girlfriend Heather. As he tortures both of them, we're shown that both Heather and Mace are actually in the hospital that Guy was flown to, both of them, oddly enough, in comas. Dr. Crawford, the hot doctor from issue 22, says that she's been monitoring them both, and they've had the same odd spasms in a portion of their brain that Guy had when he was in his coma. She leaves to get the lab results on the pair, and Guy is left alone with Heather. Guy thinks back to the time in his reckless youth when he and Heather were out driving home from the prom. Guy's to stir, but it isn't Mace awakening, it's Dementor rising Freddy Krueger-like from his brother's chest. The failed Valdarian taunts Guy, saying that he has both Mace and Heather, and that if he ever wants to see them awake again, he needs to find a way to get to it. Luckily, the one person who can get Guy into the dream world where Dementor resides appears in a puff of smoke in the hospital. The Phantom Stranger says that the two are in a possession coma, and that he can use his magic to get Guy to the realm to stop Dementor. Electing to take the magic route over smashing his head on the pavement, Guy enters the Stranger's portal, vowing that he'll return with himself and the two comatose victims. After he delivers a knuckle sandwich to Dementor, they'll give him a case of gas that he won't recover from. Sadly, Guy's bravado is met by bemusement as ghoulish hands burst forth from the ground to bind Guy to an altar. An altar that Dementor plans to consecrate by chopping Guy's head off with an axe morphed from his hands. But Guy isn't about to be taken out that easily as he armors his neck, causing the blade to bend around it. Dementor marvels at Guy's budding skills, but remarks that Guy is only the pupil, while he is the master. The Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Layman, 2011, all rights reserved, begins as Dementor taunts Guy by encasing him in a green glob of goo while grabbing his gorgeous girlfriend at the ginger gardener and flaunting them in front of him. Guy slices his way out of the cocoon as knocks Dementor from his throne. Guy points Heather and Mace to the portal the Phantom Stranger is holding open as he makes sure that he actually finished off the Poldarian horror. But it turns out that he's not that lucky as Dementor pounces on Guy and the two do their best to try and absorb each other into their own bodies. Ugh. Guy finally prevails by bursting out of Dementor's chest all alien style and hightails it back to the Stranger's portal. Making it back to the hospital, Guy finds Dr. Crawford tied to a hospital bed and his brother missing. It seems that after Mace came out of the coma, a government agency called the Quorum rushed in and took him against his will. However, Heather has awoken from her coma and is promised by Guy that she will never have to face that nightmare again. But their reunion is cut short by a phone call from Buck Borgo, who tells Guy to get down to 5th and 57th Street as he's got to make it to the opening of his new bar, Warriors. Well, 
all the setup is over and done with, and now we can officially get to the tattooed manliness that is Guy Gardner Warrior. Here in this comic, we've got Guy having his first real fight with the series' archenemy. Uh, there's plot lines resolved and plot lines put forward, and to be honest, the art is some of the best we've had in the run. Um, Bird and Davis are really hitting their stride here, and the art and work in previous issues, they hadn't gotten the characters down quite yet. I enjoyed the art, but oftentimes there were parts where it looked a bit off or it looked a bit rushed. But this is finally hitting its stride here. It's all around just chock full of delicious goodness served up on a silver platter by Mitch Bird, Dan Davis, and especially the incomparable Bo Smith. Really, really loving it. But let's go ahead and go to our notes here, or my notes, I guess, since I'm alone. The cover is a very moody, very scary very, like I said before, evocative of the sort of Nightmare on Elm Street movies, with uh, Guy Gardner trying to force his way out of the chest of Dementor, and the rest of his body is sort of taken up by all these faces that are also trying to stretch their way out of him. And, of course, Dementor is in his crazy Dave Mustaine yelling thing with his red hair going all over the place, and the sort of reddish and purple background gives it a very a feel uh, like it's an alternate dimension or possibly even a demonic dimension or if you want to go so far as saying it a sort of hellish dimension really good cover i'm liking it and all the characters look you know the new design of uh, mitch bird's guy gardner starting to grow on me and it's looking really good on the cover here opening a book on page one how do you know that this is a Bo Smith penned book? Pretty simple. Guy Gardner on the first page is tossing a bunch of Norse guys around. Not just uh, typical Norse guys, but pretty beefy, ponytailed Norse guys. The ones that look like they might give Thor a run for his money. So, yeah, it's a macho issue. Page 3, but even though Bo Smith is known for doing his very manly parts, he's also very sentimental, and... On this page, once Guy reaches the statue dedicated to ice, he falls to his knees and mourns. And there's an inset panel here that's just a close-up of Guy's eyes. And you'll notice this in uh, subsequent issues, that when Guy gets into his warrior mode and he's getting ready to do a little beatdown on some people, his eyes will go pupilless and they'll just go white. But here, the same thing is rendered, and it's really kind of touching because he's just come from this angered crazed fight where he's trying to get at this temple to now seeing the statue dedicated to the love of his life and he's just overcome with grief and you can you know burden davis do a great job just in this one little inset panel you can see in the eyes and the way his face looks that guy is torn up about this loss just amazing amazing art and you can tell here that ice was the one thing that was holding guy together then on page five i've got to say this to all the guy gardner haters out there who claim that he's just a brain dead bruiser on these pages or on this page he speaks to queen olaf ice's mother in her native language Guy cared so much about Torah that he even made an effort to learn her language. It again shows Guy's dedication to Ice and Bo Smith's dedication to the fact that he realizes that Guy was more than just a fighter. Initially, he was a self-educated man who initially was a teacher, so he's not a dummy by any stretch of the imagination. It's also nice here that he also respects even though at the beginning when he was trying to punch out all the Norsemen at the beginning, he respects the customs. And when he's confronted by Ice's mother, he realizes that they don't like outsiders here, so he decides that it's time for him to leave. So not only is he intelligent and knowledgeable and able to learn this language of the woman he loves, but he's also respectful of the customs of her family. So not the bruiser that we'd see in the Green Lantern issues uh, in the early 80s or in the mid-80s, and the 
Guy Gardner that we'd see in the different Giffen made DeMatteis Justice League. Page six, as Guy's getting ready to leave, Queen Olaf takes him by the arm and says that he's always welcome there. And in this really touching panel, she kisses Guy's hand and calls him her son. And then she compliments him on his knowledge of the language and says it's doing well, but you could work on the accent. And Guy is completely respectful of it. It's just a wonderful set of panels. Plus, again, Bird and Davis do a really good job, like I've mentioned before, with a female form. And it's no different here with Ice's mother. Queen Olaf is a very attractive woman, but she also has a nobility and a bit of regalness, if that's even a word, to her. They do a great job at depicting her. I mean, she looks, and she also looks not stereotypical 90s female. She looks real. And I like the fact that they're, that Bird and Davis are able to convey this. The artwork is really, like I said before, really hitting its stride in this book. Then on page 7, uh, we see that Buck Morgo sent Guy out to whatever country that Queen Olaf and Ice lived in via helicopter. And one wonders if Buck Morgo's got enough money if he might have hired Airwolf. Best ones for you, Andy and Stephen. Thank you. Page 8, going back to the artwork. Bird is really good at doing these horrific one-page splashes with Dementor sitting on this throne of it looks like emaciated bodies because the base of the chair or the feet of the chair actually feed people. It's really creepy and the creepiness is enhanced somewhat by the fact that well, Dementor's loincloth in the front looks like it's made of hair growing out of his belly button. To make it even more creepy, it looks like the loincloth in the back might be grown from hair out of... I don't even want to think about it. Page 9, panel 2. Now, anyone else who has this comic, Professor Allen, I'll be talking to you right now, uh, look at this panel and look at the word balloon over Mace's head. And I'm wondering if the final word of Mace's sentence in here is kind of blurred out, because in my book, it looks like it's saying, you know, Nags or M A G Z, but it's kind of blurred out, so it might be a possible curse word that they just didn't use the stereotypical ampersand, hashtag, whatever to make it a curse word. Then on the same page, panels four and four through six, I like the fact that Dementor throws the uh, screaming skull at Mace, which is fine because it's not really a screaming skull; it's just peacocks and you know, Dementor is trying to get Mace Ball crazy. It's a Mystery Science Theater reference. If you've watched the show, you know it. Page 10, panel 1, we get another big old booty shot from Mitch Bird. He does enjoy uh, women's backsides, and you get Heather, scantily, well, not clad in anything really here, so there's a nice butt shot there. Always good for a comic. Speaking of Heather, on page 12, it's not really explained in the book whether Heather's been in a coma since the date of Guy Gardner's accident, or if it just happened recently. I'm going to make the assumption that it was the former, but it's never really specifically said. If that's the case, she's been in a coma for quite some time, because on page 13, you get the panels of what happened uh, to put Heather in this coma. Basically... It's either Joe Staten art or a really wonderful rendition of Bird doing Joe Staten art. And I'm thinking it might be Staten. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to tell. The line work and the inking looks like it might be Bird and Davis, but it's got the style of Joe Staten. It's got the more angular look. Uh, guy's got more of the square jaw, and it's definitely the feel of the sort of 
1950s, 1960s Guy Gardner that we saw in uh, the Yesterday Sin storyline. So it's either a really great callback to, to Joe Staten by Burden Davis, or it's Joe Staten coming in and doing the artwork here for just this one panel. Either way, it's really great to see. Plus, on the page, you're treated to an image of the uh, drink that they were drinking while driving, which was Dooley's Cherry Vodka. So, maybe an homage, maybe a poke at uh, editor Kevin Dooley. I'm thinking it might have been a poke, especially with what Kevin has been rumored to have done to the whole Green Lantern storyline. Page 15, we get more Nightmare on Elm Street and Exorcist vibe here with... Dementor popping out of the chest of the comatose mace and then sort of spiraling spiraling back into it. It's, again, really good artwork by Davis and Bird, and it's really gruesome here, especially Dementor popping out of there and his tongue doing a sort of top hat and cane image of Guy Gardner. It's, it's just bizarre and creepy and weird all, all together. Pages 16 and 17. Now, I don't know all that much about the Phantom Stranger, and I know he kind of gets a bad rap of being the character who just sort of pops up at certain times and mumbles to people and then disappears. But if this is how the Phantom Stranger were be portrayed all the time, I think I'd really like him. He's very cool here. He's got a weird vibe around him, and... I think, again, this is a testimony to uh, Bo Smith knowing the characters and writing them in the right way. The Phantom Stranger is really actually kind of cool here, and I'm really liking his addition to the book. Probably it's only going to be this one little issue, but he was a nice cameo here. Page 18, as the Phantom Stranger opens his mystic portal so Guy can go beat the snot out of Dementor, Guy's bravado here is just awesome. It's like, well, his way, you know, when uh, the Phantom Stranger opens and says, remember, he waits for you, Guy says, oh, his wait's going to be over real pronto-like. I'm going to deliver a knuckle sandwich that will give him a case of gas he'll never recover from. You just wait here and don't mess up anything. Just think of yourself as a taxi with a meter running. And then, you know, as the Phantom Stranger says, I hope that your confidence matches your bravado. And the next panel, Guy says, what is it? Do all these spook types think they gotta get? They've always gotta get in the last word. I just love it. Uh, Bird is great at writing sort of macho dialogue, and it fits for Guy Gardner really well here. Page twenty. It's a nice three-quarter panel splash here of Dementor using his hand to morph into an axe and cutting Guy's head off. But the bottom, like one-quarter panel, where you see Guy's armored up his neck and. Dementor pulls the axe back with the indention of where the blade came down on his neck at, on the blade. It's kind of Looney Tunes, but it's also kind of fun. Then moving on to page 23, panel 4, we get another Nightmare on Elm Street reference with Dementor using his disgustingly huge tongue to just lick the face of Heather, and it's creepiness. I'm skipping over a few pages of the fight because you really can't describe that. The artwork is really good, but on page 26, panel 1, Guy decides to morph one of his hands into a sort of vacuum cleaner to absorb Dementor inside of him and try to destroy him that way. Probably not the best idea because it gets this whole absorbing thing between the two characters, and it's just... It's just achiness and weirdness at the same time, but... Like I said, throughout the entire thing, the artwork is very surreal and very well done by Burden Davis. Then on page 29, I really enjoy Guy's final words as he's exiting Dementor's realm. It's time to wipe it and flush it. <laughs> and also, for some reason, uh, after the uh, fight with Dementor, Guy's lost his tattoos. So this is something we'll be coming up uh, in subsequent issues of the book, will realize that Guy's transformation, he doesn't really know how to do it. He'll transform back and forth from, you know, the non-tattooed Guy Gardner to the tattooed warrior, and he doesn't know quite how to control it right now. 
Um, eventually he'll figure it out, but I think here he's lost his tattoos because he's finished the fight with uh, Dementor, so he can just go back to being Guy. Thankfully, he kept the red pants, so that's good. Page 30, we get a bit of misogyny here, with our, or maybe a bit of uh, BDSM here, with uh, Dr. Becky being tied up to the bed, and in one panel we get a almost upskirt shot, So, and plus her... Her blouse is kind of uh, opened up as well, so her bra is exposed. So uh, a little titillation for the uh, young man reading this issue. And of course, the Phantom Stranger has disappeared without saying goodbye. So I guess is that par for the course? Does he usually do that? Who knows? Then on page 31, we get the introduction of Guy's Bar, and everyone's there, including Tiger Man, who's sitting on a bar stool with a cut-off shirt and really short, far too short shorts, and he's sitting there splaying. I really don't want to look at Tiger Crotch. Ugh. Then on the next panel, we get Arisi complaining that she doesn't want Guy to make her wear go-go boots when she's working at Guy's new bar. Um, hello, Arisi, do you remember the outfit you had on the last time we saw you in this book? Go-go boots are hardly the most embarrassing thing that you would have ever worn. I guarantee it. But that does it for the issue proper. Because this was a double-sized issue, at the end of the book they've got some pin-up art done by some really great artists. Um, unfortunately, the Guy Gardner book didn't run to 50 issues, so... At issue 50, like it did in the Green Lantern, they weren't able to do a pinup thing. So I'm glad they got to do it here on issue 25. And the first one is a really great image of the original look of Guy Gardner and then the traditional Guy Gardner uniform drawn by Joe Staten and uh, inked by Terry Austin. Really looks awesome. The next one's an Adam Hughes pinup. And this is perhaps the best one here. It's a very cheesecake shot of ice, and it's not in the sort of lascivious costume that we saw in the uh, previous issues of Guy Gardner Warrior. It's the stereotypical JLI stuff, and it's very pastel, and it's really good artwork by Adam Hughes. Nice look here. The next one's a uh, Howard Porter one. Uh, it's from the uh, Guy Gardner Reborn series, where Guy's going back to find the yellow ring, and it's got Guy and Lobo in there, and it's a very... Guy looks very ape-like. He looks more like Lobo. Lobo looks good, but this isn't one of my favorite pinups in here. The next one we've got is by Dan Jurgens, and it's uh, Guy and the rest of the Justice League, along with Superman, fighting Doomsday. That's a really good image. I like this one. The next one, however, is by Burden Davis, and it's Guy versus Militia, and it's, it's more stylized to that artist who did... Uh, the Justice League story, the Trouble with Guys one, the fill-in artist, that it really didn't look as good as the stuff they did in this issue. The next one is a Gene Ha one, and it's a guy in parallax in their sort of fight of who could have the uh, goofiest costume of the 1990s, and unfortunately I think both of us lose. Good art, but horrible costumes, especially that armor. Ugh, the armor. Then finally we get sort of a pastel painted uh, thing of Guy Gardner Warrior with Dementor in the background. And you've got a nice uh, image of Kyle in the foreground. And then Militia and Aresia is sort of running towards the, uh, well, towards the camera or toward the viewers. Not the best pinup here, but overall all these pinups were a lot better than what we saw in the Green Lantern issue, number 50. But that does it with uh, the issue proper. Let's go ahead and take a look at the ads. Uh, of course, being the 90s, and again, being the fact that comic book people obviously have horrible acne, the front inside cover is an advertisement for Stridex pads, because newer, bigger Stridex pads, simple pimple control. Thanks for perpetuating stereotypes, advertisers. We appreciate it. A few pages in, we get Enter the Superhero World, and it's an image of, it looks like a Paramek Batman and Robin, 
and it's an advertisement for Rainbow Bubblegum. And if you send in six ninety nine and two wrappers uh, from Rainbow Bubble Rainbow Bubblegum, they will insert your name, birthday, and your hometown in a comic book with Batman in it. I don't think this was an in-continuity comic book. I think it was one of these things where it was just a generic comic book and they would slap your name in at certain places in the comic and it had a story of its own and you'd just be mentioned throughout it. So, kind of neat. You could have your own sort of personalized Batman comic. Next page is an ad for the Death and Return of Superman game for the Super Nintendo. Uh, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor covered this on the... uh, from Crisis to Crisis coverage when they're doing the uh, Death and Return of Superman. Superman. Reign of the Superman. I'll get it eventually. Then we get Power, Justice, Darkness, Light. Two halves of an ancient puzzle are the only hope. It's Double Dragon. Sadly, it's not the video game Double Dragon. It's the movie Double Dragon, starring... Robert Patrick, Mark DeCascos, Scott Wolf, and Alyssa Milano. Yes, Mark DeCascos, perennial ninja fan. Or he was in a lot of karate movies. He was basically the uh, D-list Jean-Claude Van Damme. Then on the next page, we get a house ad for Time is the Enemy. They call him the Flash. He thought he could run forever. Now each step is taking him closer to the finish line. Can he outrage his fate before his time runs out? It's Terminal terminal Velocity, the uh, Flash storyline that ran through issues 50 through 100 of The Flash. And I'm thinking this might be where um, Wally gets in touch with the Speed Force and finally reaches, well, speeds that no other Flash has ever reached. So there you go. Hopefully Dave Walker can elucidate some of this. And while heading almost all the way to the end of the book, you know, they've pretty much kept the action going throughout all the book. We get another house ad for Superman Dead Again that ran through, uh, I guess, triangle numbers uh, 1994-41 till 1995-number-3. So Superman's dead after he was dead. Again, from crisis to crisis, we'll cover this. And I can't wait to listen to it. And again, more house ads. We get two commanders, two crews, one mission to extinguish a deadly threat. It's the uh, crossover four-issue miniseries from DC and Malibu Comics, Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek The Next Generation. And it's some nice-looking art here. I don't know who is drawing or writing the two series, and I guess Malibu at the time had the uh, copyright for Deep Space Nine. Uh, DC was doing the Next Generation comics, so that's kind of odd. The DC subscription ad uh, features images of the new Tim Drake Raman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and The Flash on there. Not the new Green Lantern yet. I guess Kyle hasn't made it to the uh, subscription ads yet. The DC Universe page has an article about uh, how comics are colored and the uh, way that they use the uh, essentially new coloring techniques to uh, give a sort of shading and definition to the characters. It's a neat little article. The back inside cover has the woman of their dreams as now a virtual reality. It's weird science. And no, it's not the movie weird science because that was about three or four years. Well, it was more than that. It was like five or six years before this comic was released. So this is an advertisement for the TV show Weird Science, which starred Vanessa Angel instead of Kelly LeBrock. So it's not a horrible trade-off. But it was uh, USA sort of burgeoning, doing their own, rather than doing like movies and whatever, trying to do their own uh, series of shows. Um, Some of them were really good, and some of them weren't. Can't say about Weird Science. Didn't really watch much of it. Love the movie, though. And then, of course, the back outside cover is another ad for the NFL Tectochrome Playoff Cards. I'm not going to go into it. You know how I feel about trading cards, especially sports trading cards. But that does it for the issue. Uh, Once again, neither of these issues have been reprinted. Hopefully soon, DC will decide to showcase these Guy Gardner issues because they would definitely look good in a trade. I would love to pick that up. But 
That does it for now. Uh, next week, we'll be covering another two issues of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. Well, another single issue of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. Plus, we'll be doing a little stopover with Rebels number one. Yes, if you want to know what was happening to Vril Dox, the former Brainiac, and his crew, including Lobo and FaZe and Strata and all them, come back next week. You'll find out. Essentially, it's just a, another plot to get me to buy another comic. Whatever. Anyway, thank you all for listening, thank you all for writing in, and come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Apollo 440 with the Lost in Space theme from said movie, Lost in Space. If you wanted to buy this song, you could probably buy it a lot of places, but the best place to go buy it is at Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is to go to the link at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. At the top of the page, when you go to Two True Freaks, there's a banner that will lead you to Amazon.com. Click that banner, you'll be taken to Amazon, and you can buy the album, buy the song, or download the song from Amazon. You can also buy the movie from Amazon.com. And yes, Lost in Space is not the best movie out there, but it does have Gary Oldman in there. And Joey is a space fighter pilot. So, there's something.